once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill them all up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake and Jeff McClure. Um, together we are bald. And say our names together. Sometimes. Sometimes appropriate. Sometimes. Yes. Right. Um, yeah. Now we have said our introduction, and the rest is a lot less exciting. Well, except for this exciting part, right? No, that's not very exciting. Um, I don't know. I mean, we, we've got a little bit of an inverted yield curve in the wrong place. That's ah. exciting. Oh, yeah. So we will be talking about the dreary science today, the dismal science, the, um, the one that everyone says is the least interesting. Well, we're going to try to make it more interesting. We're going to do our best, but we're bald. So that's our first disclosure. Yep. Right. Uh, our second disclosure is that the personal wealth coach is not just the name of this radio program. It's also the name of a registered investment advisory firm that's registered with the SEC. Um, why are we telling you that? Because they wish us to, and it's a good idea to know that we have a professional side to what we're doing as well as this weird radio stuff. Um, but I just said it's registered to give investment advice with the SEC. But we can't do that on the air uh, because fiduciary investment advice, we have to know who you are and we have to be private about what we say. There's a little problem with both of those on the radio. So what we do on the radio is education. Do we get some benefit from it? Sure. Sometimes people call us to do business with us uh, after having listened to the radio program for lots of years. Rarely after the first listen. After the first listen, they're probably getting medicated in their wondering what it was that just happened to them. And, well, that was a weird program. Why didn't I change the channel? After about the third time they listen, they're hooked. And uh, the, mm. fir the first one's always free. Um, on top of that, just because we're registered with the, at the firm level with the SEC doesn't mean that they approve of us. Because that's, Boy, is that an understatement? That's not how they do it. They don't approve stuff. There's no approval if you know if if you're approval seeking you've got issues with the parent and you really wish for approval uh, you're going to need a lot of therapy if you ever register with the SEC because you get none from them uh, you do get disapproval occasionally we have so far avoided all the disapproval side uh, which is nice uh, that that they are uh, the SEC though so their job is to find things of to disapprove just like the police are not supposed to go out and tell you well done you have followed the law it's it's more like they say hey you're you're breaking the law there you got to stop it so um that's those those are my first two disclosures do you have one that you would wish to wish well there's always the one that we're not paid for to do this radio program that's true nor do we pay the radio station to do the program we do it out of the goodness of our hearts, it does provide us some benefits. So we have obtained a few clients in the 26 years I think we've been doing this, not very many. And if we do a cost-benefit analysis, I think considering our time and all things considered, I don't think it's no, all things considered, a very good that's advertisement. A, that's a different radio thing. See, what else? Oh, yeah, we advertise on KTEM for the radio show. Yes, and which KTEM also advertises for the radio program. That's good. Yes. Uh, the information that we provide on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. See, this is my one time a week I get to say deem, an accuracy or completeness. Of, of said information. 
we right. also, and this is my favorite part, I have to add this in, I may have to do this forever, henceforth, henceforth, we also do not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of unsaid information. I do. I could guarantee it's I will guarantee the incompleteness of unsaid information. Perfect. That's the only guarantee we can give today. I guarantee it. Oh, no. I don't know if you saw the article this, this last week about... This is the headline. Russia war in Ukraine exposes weakness in ESG. ES, yes. ESG is environmental, um, social, and governance. And again, if you've listened to, to us very long, we have talked about what a joke that is. That who sets these gauges? Who says if it's environmental? Is lithium environmental? I've just said it's pretty dirty, but it's better for, for the carbon in the air, so it must be clean. Well, no, don't get it in the water. Uh, so it falls under the E and ESG. So can natural gas, which will confuse a lot of, of uh, diehard environmentalists. What? Natural gas is considered E and ESG? Yeah, because it's cleaner than coal. Social. Um, what does that even mean? Which social? If you feel one way socially, you could say, yeah, this company's doing that. And somebody else could disagree with you completely because they feel another way socially. And then there's G, and this is the one that's really in this particular story. ESG funds have been buying Russia for years. And anybody can look at the G, which is governance, and say, R Russia's going the wrong direction on that and has been for 22 years. Uh, they're uh, not holding free elections anymore. They're being very, very closed on the media. There's no way you can say G is a good thing in Russia, in the ESG. And the Wall Street Journal is coming out and finally saying, hey, there's some hypocrisy here. There's, there are companies that have, I mean, I'm going to be equal across the board. And I know this is maybe bad timing to say it about Ukraine, but there's a lot of corruption in the Ukrainian government. Not, not up close to the top that's easy to find. But in the, in the middle ranks, the bureaucratic ranks, there's a lot of graft. Um, and that's just kind of an expected thing in Eastern Europe. Uh, that doesn't mean that there's not corruption higher up, too. There's just less evidence of it. Uh, so just kind of lay that out there. Anybody that's looking at ESG and says, hey, it's a good idea to invest in Ukraine and in Russia, I have to look at what is their standard for governance because they're not, uh, they're not, doing what we would consider clearly fair governing. Um, even when you look at the United States, you know, people have questions about voting machines and so on, but at least there's a lot of attention that gets put on it and it's, it is publicized. Elsewhere in the world, it's not. So ESG, again, coming back to this, it's a big trend and people come to me and say, hey, do you use that ESG stuff? I want to feel good about what I'm investing in. And my answer to that is the same every time. The only way to feel good about what you're investing in is to know what you're investing in. There having, it is. Having somebody else put a label on it for you, it's, it is not real feel good. It's you're just letting somebody else pat you on the head and saying, yeah, it's taken care of. That, that internal investigation in what you own, if you feel strongly about things and you don't want to own certain things, you should investigate that or hire someone to do it. If someone's offering you a free label, and you don't know the standards behind the label, then you may make you feel good, but I don't know. It's it's just a, a whitewash on a on a falling down building. It's important to say about ESG. If you're an investor and you're thinking, or you know someone who's thinking about ESG investing, there is no standard 
for what is ESG. There's well, there's lots of standards. Yeah, lots of everybody standards. has their own. And I was looking through some of the ones that Morningstar say have high ESG ratings and included petroleum companies, which I thought was fascinating. Um, it, it is. I mean, not that petroleum companies are bad. We've said this again and again. My car runs on gas. The electricity in my house comes probably from natural gas being burned. So the, this whole concept about green, not green, we think it's silly. But that label of E on petroleum products, if you went to an environmentalist and said, is an, a petroleum company an environmentalist uh, advocate? I, I bet you know the answer you'll get. So who's setting the standards? And this is the answer is that the person that is selling you the product is setting the standards right now and they get to tell you something that'll make you want to buy the product. Uh, well, the SEC is opening up um, standards uh, or at least opening up hearings on the discussion for having a meeting to have more hearings about the standards around possibly more meetings on setting standards for ESG. So it's the government. And we have a question from Inquisitor John. He's asking, what is inverse exposure? And he's got the Wall Street Journal, a picture of it with a circle around a particular paragraph. But I just wish that we didn't have context and he was just asking us, what is inverse exposure? I would say that's, being, that's wearing clothes. Um, it means that you're not exposed anymore. That's not what it means in the market, though. And we will get to that. Um, We'll get to what is inverse exposure and does it work for what it's supposed to be doing and because the idea is that it's supposed to prevent risk. What is inverse exposure? And then he's got a picture of the Wall Street Journal, the headline being risky stock bets soar in popularity. And then um, there's it says three of the other 10 most actively traded exchange traded products also offer leverage or inverse exposure to the market, allowing investors to magnify their investments or bet on a fall. What does that mean? Okay, this gets into one of those silly, silly areas of the investment world that almost no one really understands. The few people that do, um, there's probably a, a lot of people that claim to understand it that really don't, and then there's a few people that understand. I'm not sure I fully understand it, and I've been looking at this stuff for, I was just looking at it, 31 years. Um, first off, here's some simple ways for when it says leverage. Okay, let's say that you have some, this goes back to an early concept called hedging your investment. Um, this is where the term hedge fund comes from, but hedge funds don't do it anymore, or very few of them do. Um, hedging your investment would be if you own a stock and you're afraid it's going to drop, um, you look around at the market and you say, hey, will anyone let me pay you some money today so that I can sell the stock to you at the same price it is today over the next three months? I'll pay you some money so that you can do this. And then if I don't sell it to you, you just have this money. So you're buying the right to sell it at a price. That's one way of hedging it. And that's, that's also known as inverse exposure because exposure means how much risk do you have? Your risk, you know, the market could drop. Well, if you have the right to sell your stocks at today's value, well, then you didn't drop with the market. You just lost whatever you paid for that right. I know that's a little bit convoluted, but wait, it's going to get more so. Sometimes people borrow the stock 
or borrow the money to buy the stock. Or sometimes they borrow the stock with borrowed money. This is called leverage. And it means that you don't have as much money in your initial investment. It's other people's money that you're using, which means that if you get to keep all the gains and you just have to pay back the borrow cost, then you could make this big return on a much smaller amount of money. And it sounds great, except that you have the other end of that too. You can wind up losing more than you invested because you still have to pay back the rest of that borrowed money. And if the stock drops to nothing, it goes away, which <clears throat> is why that headline says risky stock bets soar in popularity because they're not using words that we're used to hearing. They're not saying, let's borrow a bunch of money to buy this stock, this risky stock. They're saying, let's use some leverage and, and maybe some inverse exposure to get this thing done. And people go, oh, that sounds really smart. Let's do that. Um, does it work? Sometimes. Well, it all depends. Yeah, it all depends. Sometimes it works. It has to be set up right. And, and the reality is that it creates more friction on the growth in your portfolio because you got to be paying money for this stuff either in interest charges on borrowed stuff or on selling when you don't want to sell because the market is down, but you need to meet your minimums in the margin area. There's a, there's a lot of complexity here. You have to, pro it's, it's a lot easier for it to not work than it is for it to work. That's, that is my statement on it. You want to add to that? I did some numbers on this a while back and there's some leveraged funds out there that there's a whole family that does extensive 50, what they're called 50% leveraged funds. In other words, if you, if you buy into the fund, there's a portfolio of stocks and they borrow 50% of the value. So you get 150% of the stocks that you're actually buying. And man, if the market was going up, you would, you, it's 50% leverage. You look puzzled like, okay. Right. So you basically get one and a half times, theoretically one and a half times the stock you're buying, which really sounds cool. So if the market goes up 10%, you would expect to go up, what, 15%. It doesn't work that way, though. Go up about 13% instead of 15%. Why? Well, you got to pay interest on the borrowed money. Yep. And That's that friction it, we're talking about. And there's just a lot of friction that goes on in there. The same thing is true, and that's what John is asking about. Reverse. Or inverse. Inverse. or sh Basically, the easiest way to inverse the market is to short it. Basically, you buy, you borrow money to buy stocks or a stock index. Or you but, borrow the stock in the right. same way. Well, you borrow the money in most cases, most cases, if it's leveraged index, reverse, right, right. inverse, you borrow some money, you buy some stocks that you didn't really buy because you just borrowed them. And you pay interest on the borrowed money. And you pay interest on the borrowed stock. And if the market goes down a lot, you make a significant amount of money, make more money than if you just shorted the stock. If the market goes up a lot, you lose lots, a, a lot more than you gain if it goes down. Yeah. And it is, you, you just have to be lucky. It's a gambling. And this is that type of bet, by the way, has an unlimited downside. Right. That means that there's no limit on the amount you can lose when you use that type of leverage. It is extremely dangerous. It means that you could borrow a relatively small amount and then with no downside, you could lose a tremendously large amount. There were some big headlines last year about this time at Robinhood 
for a bunch of people that didn't know what they were doing and were getting into leveraging and such, and they wound up with bills of millions of dollars on a $50,000 purchase. Some of you may remember that stuff. That's what they were doing. They were trying to inverse the market. Um, when you're borrowing stuff, you have to pay it back. And when you're borrowing stock, you have to buy the stock to pay it back if you already sold it. So if and that's when you're stock borrowing money to borrow the stock, bar yeah. you're yeah. borrowing money to borrow the stock, it can get nasty in a big hurry. Yeah. So in other words, it's it's possible to use inverse leverage and wind up with let's say in this case you're talking about a fifty thousand dollar investment and wind up in bankruptcy. Yeah. So all that being said. When a, a fund, an exchange-traded product does it, there's a lot of disclosure requirements. You know those prospectuses that you're, nobody ever reads? Well, those are important to read. That's why the government makes all advertisements about them, say, at the end of it, please read this prospectus carefully oh, yeah. before investing. Sure. And everybody goes, oh, yeah, right. This is just a bunch of small print. Who, who needs it? Well, you need to actually understand that stuff if you're putting a large amount of money into it. It'd be like selling your business without reading the contract. You may not get or be getting what you think you are if you don't read it. And I think people get so used to just clicking the end user license agreement, I agree, on their phone. It's got 197 pages of stuff in it that nobody can understand. And you're supposed to agree to it. It's some sort of agreement that has maybe some problems if you don't do what you're supposed to do. Nobody knows what they're supposed to do. Prospectuses are important uh, and reading them is important. Understanding what you're, this, this seems to be a theme today. Uh, and the only way to understand what you're invested in is to actually understand what you're invested in. So there are very popular strategies right now that are taking on larger and larger amounts of risk because the investors of today have gotten used to very high double-digit returns. And we've had a bit of a dip over the last quarter. We've had a quarter of negative. And that causes all the marketers to go out there and say, well, what can we do to try to get a higher return than what we're getting? Um, all that being said, read the, read the prospectus or at least hire a fiduciary that will read it and explain it to you. Um, that will say, this is the risk involved in what you're doing. It's important stuff. And, and I, man, I can't say that enough. It's like, there's not a, there's not enough analogies for this. When, when you're investing a large portion of your life savings in something and you refuse to read the document that everyone is giving you warnings that you're supposed to read, it's not the same as sitting, I agree, on your iPhone. It really isn't. It is you taking the risk and saying, I don't care. So at the very least, I would say read it. If you don't have the time or the patience to read it, find someone you trust, preferably someone who's legally obligated to be in a trustworthy position like a fiduciary, who's going to tell you what it means. And yes, we're prejudiced on this because we are fiduciaries, but that's beside the point. It's why we're fiduciaries, because we were prejudiced before. Um, all right, so next subject real quick. This is one that is definitely on our radar. We're looking at it. If there's a thing that could hurt our economy happening right now, it's this. There are major lockdowns occurring across China in the manufacturing sectors, huge ones. Shanghai is shut down. There are, there are um, stories about 
the way they're handling this stuff is basically a lot of the large corporations are paying double pay to employees to just live in the factory. And they've got, you know, these sweet deal factories with the basketball courts inside and such. This basketball courts are all laid out with tents that are manufactured next door. Um, so they lay out all these tents for their employees to stay at uh, because they can't go home and then come back because that area of Shanghai is shut down. So they're doing essentially what they did during the Olympics for each manufacturing facility and saying you live in a bubble now. Those are the ones that are staying open. The ones that are not staying open are the reasons why we're seeing the number of sales of new cars dropping right now. It's not because people don't want to buy new cars. We've got high demand. It's because the parts are not being made in China because they have these big lockdowns. And we are bringing a lot of that industry back home, but that doesn't happen overnight. Um, Battery technology manufacturing in the United States has had this massive, tremendous influx of money, lots of manufacturing facilities being made, chip companies building across the board, uh, a lot more manufacturing of automobiles to, taking place here instead of elsewhere. But you can't start those up and have them be ready to turn on right away. And so we are in many ways still extremely dependent on China for a lot of the things that we make in the United States. That's a trend that is rapidly changing, but rapidly does not mean this month. So that's a, that is the biggest warning. The inverted yield curve, it's not inverted yet. It's not inverted by any of the traditional standards. Uh, that's not a warning to the leading economic indicators are blazing green. They look amazing, but we have a bunch of supply chains that go through an area of the world that is treating COVID in a very different way than we did, which is to say, just stop doing stuff. Um, in the long run, this is all positive. In yeah. the short run, it's going to hurt. This pain is Inflation, what's causing us to invest in our right. own facilities. Inflation for stuff, particularly products is going to continue. And by the way, we have not shifted from products to service. Now, during the pandemic, we shifted from service to products. People were buying a lot of, taking their money and buying a lot of stuff, products, rather than spending their money on services like going to the movies or going out to eat or going to stuff like that, performances. We have not come back from that yet. But the economy, and I see the time, this is the important thing. All we're looking at, the numbers we're looking at for wages and income and employment and things like that are very, very close to where they were before the pandemic began. We effectively have recovered. We're, I think Moody's has got us at 95% recovered. We're basically back in business again. And we've gone from recovery to expansion, according to Moody's. Some interesting, we've been removing in the United States, there have been a series of Chinese companies that have been kicked off of our exchange because they're not doing their accounting. They haven't released an annual report in three years, things like that. You would think, well, of course. Um, well, it's happening in Hong Kong too. Not us kicking things from Hong Kong off. The Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing Company uh, has suspended 32 companies, Chinese companies, um, for, for not meeting reporting deadlines by the end of March. 
on earnings. That included some major real estate companies. Um, this is a theme. Uh, they're not reporting earnings because they've got none. <laughs> they, are, they are in the middle of trying not to go completely out of business. Uh, and uh, just we've talked about China's Evergrande group. Um, it defaulted uh, in December. And they've been suspended since March 21st. They're off the Hong Kong exchange. Evergrande says it's back to work. Um, but the, the reality is that when you show up at a job site that they say they're back to work at, they're not there. <laughs> so this is a, a big impact on the Chinese economy. They're over leveraged. They had too many loans in this area. And they're likely to default on a lot of these loans. And they're handling COVID in a very awkward fashion that's hurting their economy. Yes. There's what we're trying to say here, and this is a critical point. Don't write off China, but there is a significant risk in China right now that their economy may go negative this year or next year. Um, and far that, more risk there than there is in the United States. That hasn't happened in 40 years mm -hmm. to have a negative year of a negative growth shrinkage in their economy hasn't happened in 40 years they've been a growth economy period and, and this is a big deal basically there's some fragility in the in the chinese economy and it is amplified by what's going on in russia they are indirectly supporting russia they're buying oil from russia they're buying things from russia that are not embargoed they were warned by the way this week by the european union not to support Russia directly. And I don't think they are supporting Russia directly. However, they aren't shunning Russia either. And Russia could be an element in pulling them down. Now, to switch the subject to Russia, Goldman Sachs came out this week and said the probability is that the Russian economy will shrink by 30% this year, which is a bigger decline in the economy than we saw in the Great Depression in the United States. Yeah, it's a big Worse, deal. last year... Russia's population shrunk by 1 million people. Now, that doesn't sound like a tremendous amount, 1 million. No, I mean, so far, I'm sorry, so far this year, they estimate 1 million people have left Russia. Russian, the Russian population is shrinking at a pretty high rate of speed. Already? Not counting, not counting people leaving the country. Russia is in a, pardon me for saying this, a world of hurt economically. And there's a distinct possibility there could be a collapse in the russian economy if there's a collapse in the russian economy they get it that certainly makes things interesting uh money that's owed to uh other people by russia wouldn't get paid back does this happen before yeah it happened in 1998 um it might be worse this time so it's one of those things that to be aware of that the world has gone bipolar again uh and we've got russia and china on one side and the united states and europe on the other side and a bunch of folks in the middle. But don't worry too much about it. The Chinese are not the juggernaut that's going to take over the world. We've said this before, but I think it's important to keep this in mind. When, when did Back to the Future 2 come out? In the 19, 80s, in the 1980s. Yeah, back in the 1980s, there was this general assumption that Japan was going to take over the world. And by now, Japan, everybody would be speaking Japanese, and Japanese, the Japanese would own everything. And there's this that, similar that's assumption. That's Back to the Future, too. You got yeah. to get, get your cult fiction correct here. That's Back to the Future, too. Back to the Future, one, he went back to the past. So why it was right. called Back 
to the future. Well, Back to the Future know. 2, what, that's why I was what year was Back to the Future 2 is a question. Um, let me see. I will find out for you. Anyway, there's this assumption when the Japanese were, they bought Madison Square Garden and they bought the Pebble Beach Golf Course and they had all the money in the world and everything was looking good. 1989. Okay, so at the end of the 1980s, it looked like Japan was going to take over the world economically. A year or two ago, it certainly looked like China was going to take over the world economically. And that is beginning to fall apart and will continue to fall apart. The major long-term indicators do not favor China. Uh, Chairman Xi doesn't like that, I'm sure. But in the long term, authoritarian governments don't do well economically. That's just the reality of history. Our crazy mixed up, hostile to each other, democracy and free enterprise system that we use in the United States seems to work exceptionally well economically over the long term. Um, the Chinese don't like that. The Chinese leadership doesn't like that. The Russian leadership doesn't like that. The other thing, and we've said this before, and it's important to remember, Russia's economy is a little smaller than that of Italy. It's significantly smaller than that of Texas. They are not a major world power despite the fact that they would like to think they are. What do they have? They have a lot of nuclear weapons. The issue is try not to put them in the position where they feel like they're going to get crushed and would use those nuclear weapons. But given time, given the sanctions, Russia is going to be in a severe world of hurt. And that's hopefully cheers folks up a little bit. And they're already starting to show signs of stress and strain. If you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give investment advice, fiduciary investment advice to people of high net worth, uh, not just on the macro picture of what's happening across the world, but very micro down to the specific of the portfolio. Um, the, we've got a local telephone line with voicemail during the weekend and real live people during the, the week at... 254-947-1111. Or toll-free 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to the webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. Um, you can read our newsletters there. You can sign up for the newsletter. Uh, you can contact us through the contact form. Uh, you can go and listen to our radio programs. We've got quite a few years up on the webpage, uh, you can see what we were saying prior to big events. See if we were right or wrong. Um, maybe wrong, maybe right. Check it out. Uh, or you can contact us through the contact form or email Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. And thank you very much for listening. Until next hour, this has been the Personal Wealth Coach, and we will be back.